A new year, time for new growth. Grow your education and skills with Herzing University. Our online behavioral health programs fit your schedule and time. From an eight-month diploma program in health and human services to a 36-month bachelor's in psychology. Grow your behavioral health career with us wherever you are in your education. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Visit us online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Lit Up. On this week's episode, we have the poet Ocean Young. His debut poetry collection, Night Sky with Exit Wounds, won the T.S. Eliot Prize for Poetry. But he's here to talk about his novel, so he is more than a poet, though a lot of this novel reads like poetry and it mashes up genres and it's incredibly beautiful. That novel is called... On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous. It's drawn from his own life and opens with a letter written from a son to his illiterate mother, who suffers from mental illness, having suffered and witnessed the atrocities in the Vietnam War. Now, I hope you enjoy Ocean's evocative and beautiful voice and his equally insightful thoughts on life and the creative process. Here's Ocean. Ocean, thank you so much for coming in to speak to me. I finished your book last night. There were tears and many other things. I want to ask you about the very first sentence, and that's, Dear Ma, I'm writing to reach you, even if each word I put down is one word further from where you are. It kind of sets up this idea that the creative process you must go through is going to alienate yourself further from the person you love most. Why was it so important to put that up front? I think because that's what a lot of immigrants experience is that the more knowledge we obtain, particularly knowledge and language that is foreign to the home country, the further from that country we go and the further from our parents we go. And I think that that's one of the most powerful reckonings that second generation children of immigrants experience is that, wait a minute, this thing that was supposed to be progress, the the sacrifices that they've made for me to progress in this country is actually the one thing that makes me further and further away from them. And I think that futility was central to the novel in that, of course, the mother would never write it. So the question is, why write something that will never be sent? Why throw a message in a bottle into the ocean only for it to be lost? And I think that the the way to answer that is another question, which is, is language, i.e. the orchestration of ideas uh, around syntax enough for oneself? Is writing enough? 
if it, it doesn't matter if nobody reads. You know, and I think and I'm not sure I answered that. I want to raise the stakes of that question. And I think one of the things the novel does is to raise the stakes so that that question feels important, not necessarily to answer it. I don't know if it's answerable. Did you feel in any way that writing poetry, which is what you've become first known for, why the novel form next? And is it a different process when you're writing poetry versus the novel? Absolutely, absolutely. The novel is expansive. And the more you make of it, the more it haunts you. You know, after a while, the world of the novel, the characters, the the dialogue, and, you know, it is essentially a novel in that I made up so much of the dialogue. I made up these characters and what they do in time and space that I'm always tending to them. And... They were always around my peripheral vision, even as I tried to live my life, as I tried to do dishes, as I tried to teach. The the, the world of the novel was a portal that kept widening and widening. And if I knew it was this challenging, I knew if if I knew it was this this total an act, I might not have embarked on it. Um, I think a lot of it was done in naivete. About two years ago, a portion of the novel was printed in the New Yorker as a memoir. What was that process of deciding I need to break free from even the rules of a memoir? Right, right. I wanted the the book to start as nonfiction, which it did, and in nonfiction that is thoroughly and famously fact-checked by the New Yorker, which who are uh, you know renowned for for doing that. And I wanted to lay out the map and the evolution of an artistic practice that began with truth and is realized by the imagination. In the same way, a lot of novels have existed in the Western canon, particularly the American canon, all the way down to Moby Dick. Many people don't realize that Moby Dick is an autobiographical novel. Herman Melville lived that life. He went to Nantucket, went on those boats, met those people, and hunted those whales. And he traveled the world doing it. And that book is also about writing, theology, American identity, metaphysical uh, meditations on whiteness. It was an uncompromising project. It, It did not compromise any artistic or curious inquiry into uh, any vein of thinking. And so I found myself, whether I wanted to or not, deeply planted in the American tradition of autobiography. And the powerful thing about that was that in American letters, the self was always negotiable. It was a malleable presence. A lot of this is informed by transcendentalism. And I, I thought, my goodness, what, what would happen if an Asian-American writer decided to not compromise? What would happen if an Asian-American writer saw his life and the lives that made him and deemed that these lives were worthy of literature with a capital L? These are discussions we're having a lot at the moment, like rethinking the canon. But I hadn't thought that making a work calling something a novel was radical as well. Yeah, 
Yeah, I think so, especially for a writer of color, because often, and this is rarely said, but it's often enacted, we are seen as merely conduits of an anthropological reality, right? So we often, the the thing is, we never ask, well, is Catcher in the Rye autobiographical? It certainly is. I mean, you know, Salinger went to private school, lived in New York, um, but he, he rarely gets that. But then Sylvia Plath does, right? It's a woman. Um, and so when it's someone who's not a white man, immediately they are seen as merely bridges, tour guides to an exotic reality, whether it's be a woman's mind who is experiencing mental illness or a refugee um, surviving in the aftermath of geopolitical violence. And we're seen as merely tour guides rather than world makers. And I think that's the first pigeonhole that a lot of people in the margins, and again, as evidenced by Sylvia Plath, women included, where it's, you know, oh, never mind the craft, never mind the artistic agency, the sentence making, just tell me your, your you know, dark horror so I can get it you know, and then carry on to the next meal or whatever, next flavor. And and that, that happens a lot in, in publishing, uh, particularly in America. And I wanted to resist that. I never called myself a journalist or a historian. That kind of work uh, demands a certain amount of patience and rigor and thoroughness that I don't, skills I don't have. But I am an artist. I'm an inventor. I'm a myth maker. And I've been doing this with my poems and I wanted to preserve that level of agency and to say that this is a creation, uh, a work of the imagination, but founded on real historical lives. That's important to me, to say that these yellow bodies were just as inspiring to me as the white aristocracy uh, was to Tolstoy. We all think about words from our own perspective, and that's why it's so beautiful to read yours and get thrust into it and have to and want to learn and understand and just enjoy the beauty. Yeah, the pleasure. Of, the of, pleasure of yeah. stories. Yeah. And there is so much pleasure in your book, particularly in the language. Let's talk about pleasure then and that the eroticism and the kind of becoming and discovery of sexuality you talked earlier when we weren't recording about writing at night and how that allowed your imagination and creativity to unfurl in a way that maybe it couldn't have in the kind of brightness of day. Right. How did you conjure those sections and what was the process like? Was it beautiful to relive part of that? Um, it, was, it was everything. It was beautiful, it was terrifying. I think it was Rilke who says beauty is terrifying, and I agree. I think it is full of potent potential to write about the body and its desire. And I think I knew I wanted to focus on desire as a critical way of thinking about queerness, desire and want and not as merely plot points. Often desire can be a plot point in a novel. Somebody wants somebody else and then they get married and then you 
the story carries on. Or they want somebody and then they orchestrate a plot around acquiring and possessing such peoples. But I didn't want to do that. I, I wanted to insist that for so many queer folks, desire to see a body that you desire is an absolutely private act. It's full of shame and taboo. We're not supposed to want this. And if you were to pass such a person, you would think they're just sitting in a room. Meanwhile, there's a hurricane going on inside them. And I wanted to open that storm up into the novel and turn desire and feeling into weather and climate. And I think that's why the cycles in the novel keep returning to desire, whether it's pleasurable or fraught, often at the same time. I wanted to stay there, to remain in that hurricane and, and not ask where it takes us, but rather what, how it makes us think and feel um, between those intersections and paradoxes. It reminds me of a story that's in the book that isn't of a sexual nature, but it's the one that I loved. And it was about, it was a story that you had been told, I think your grandma or your mum would tell it to you. And it was that when a, the storm was coming, this raging storm, this, I think a mother or a mother and son yeah. or a mother and daughter, you'll have to agree, they decided to make a cake. Right. Patricia Polacco, okay. the, the Thunder Cake, is a children's book that Little Dog, the protagonist, reads with his ESL teacher. And it's kind of like this serendipitous moment, but... I think in retrospect, as an adult, when he's writing, he realizes, why did I love that story? Why did that story, was out of all the children's books I read, how, why did that one stick? And I think it was this precarious joy, this unabashed joy and, and conscious recklessness to feed oneself sugar and flour and chocolate in the face of obliteration. And... As maniacal as it seems, it's also a bomb, a way of, of finding agency in the midst of helplessness. If we're going to die, might as well eat cake. <laughs> it also felt to me like a sense of rule-breaking yes. as well. Yes. And, and as children, we don't even know we're breaking rules. Like right. We just feel that there should be joy in so many moments that... And then, you know, we're told that it's a quiet moment or right. it's at this type of moment. And none of that really makes sense. Right. We just learn it. Right, right. And that felt like one of those symbols. And actually, throughout the book and in your poetry, you put these things up against each other that are beautiful and deathly or it just feels like you're constantly breaking these rules, but they... It's so subtle and beautiful that they don't feel necessarily like bombs going off. Right, right. I think that's just the current of life. The terrifying events happen side by side, the beautiful ones. Um, you know, I, I think of, of people who recount the, the fall of Saigon, or later they recount 9-11, and again and again... 9-11 is something that looms over my imagination because I grew up in its shadow. 
I'm the generation that, that you know, you grow up post and pre 9-11 and the world changed after that. But one of the things people always say is it was a beautiful day. It was, there was no clouds. There was this incredible, you know, vermilion blue in the sky. And I think that's not an orchestration of art or juxtaposition. It's life. We don't, we don't get a say on nature to have an accordance with the, the horrors that, that we experience. And we're always up against the contrast. And, and I think that's what makes life beautiful in the end, is, is that we, we don't really control it as much as we like to. It reminds me of one of your poems as well, that, where you weave in the lyrics of A White Christmas. Right, right. I hadn't known those, that story until I listened to you talk about it with Max Porter. Yeah, that's right. And well, you were there, yeah. I, I listened to oh, yeah, it yeah. Oh, on right, podcast. Right, recorded I it, yeah. wish I had been mm, there. It's brilliant. When did you know you wanted to write a poem about that day? Yeah, well, the, the, the American radio station played Irving Berlin's White Christmas as a coded message for American personnel and their allies uh, to, to flee Vietnam. And it's interesting because they were there to supposedly save South Vietnam from communism. And, but when it came time to protect certain bodies, um, the lines were delineated. The lines were drawn um, between whose bodies were worthy of refuge and who were disposable. Um, and I think to code it with a, you know, a, this culturally iconastic um, American song was such a purposeful way to eliminate Vietnamese comprehension from it. And, and at one point, it seems so absurd that such a song would play. At another point, it seems almost masterful that it was orchestrated that way. It was probably the one song that nobody uh, can, can in the Vietnamese population could comprehend, uh, and certainly not anyone who would relate it to danger. Um, so it's an act of manipulation. And I wanted to, to weave that song through the Vietnamese gays, uh, who were Vietnamese folks who were seeing the destruction happening around them, uh, my grandmother being one of them, to take the, the optics back and say, this is what happened. This is what those who you thought could be eliminated or worthy of being eliminated, this is what they saw and they survived the seeing. Something about that that song and imagining white Christmas and snow falling also connects, I'm not sure, to the monarch butterflies that have this presence in and out of the novel. Um, I think you describe them at some point as almost as if the napalm could have looked like yes. these butterflies. When did you see these butterflies for the first time, or have you? And when did this become such a strong image that had to be threaded throughout the book? I came upon them in Annie Dillard's um, book, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, when she wrote about them. And 
I returned to Dillard, particularly that book, because the 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 radical moment in that book was Dillard decided to, in a way, write or rewrite Walden Pond from a woman's perspective. And it was something that women were not supposed to do. They're not supposed to write about nature. Men with beards are supposed to go out and, and find the truth from Thoreau uh, and, and Emerson, but also the pioneers, the pioneer writers. It was a men's work. And when Dillard did that, it felt so liberating to me as a queer Asian American to say, wait a minute, what can I recast? What can I do? And the way she did that was through meditation on nature itself and allowing the facts of, of, of the behavior of these butterflies to have their own life. Whereas I think a lot in Thoreau, he imposes himself, his philosophies onto nature. And Dillard allowed nature to exist as it is and collaborated with it rather than try to tame it in the way Thoreau did. And I thought it was such a, a new way to think about our surroundings. And I, I looked at, I started to study and research these monarchs. And I thought, you know, information is passed through the DNA in these animals and all the animals in the book. It's a book that is parallel with the lives and deaths of animals. And I think it's because I wanted to, to use them and to work with them to, to amplify human life. I didn't see, I don't see animals as that different than us. There are now labels for things like PTSD. I mean, it's so wonderful that these things are acknowledged, but sometimes the labels can feel like it limits the experience of something. How do you talk about when generations absorb the stress and the experiences that, you know, our parents and grandparents have gone through, which is such a huge part of the book. How do you talk about that when you, when it's not on the beautiful pages um, of your book? Do people ask you about it a lot? Yeah, yeah. And it's something we all should think about. You know, the words like PTSD, I think words always change and grow. If they didn't, we would be speaking in the original Middle English of Chaucer, in which we don't. And I think it's important to uh, let words grow. Um, the word LOL, for example, we can, we can follow its lifespan to the early 90s, and now it's something else. Before, it used to mean laugh out loud. Now it's almost a period. You know, it's, it's just kind of like a, a, a statement of neutrality even, right? I'm outside your house, LOL. You know, it's just like, I'm not mad, I'm just here. Um, and so it's fascinating. And PTSD changes too. You know, it was once a, a pathological, um, and, and in some ways it still is, um, lexicon. But now it's, it's used to, to investigate all sorts of trauma. And I think that's good. It's growing. And that what I'm interested in is also what does PTSD mean? in the context of embodied experience. And I think one of the things that I try to point out in the novel is that as much as we have epigenetic trauma, we also have, at the same time, epigenetic strength. And that perhaps one of the markers, some of the markers of PTSD, like hypervigilance, uh, paranoia, kleptomania, um, suspicion, 
in a peace, peaceful world um, might be debilitating, but in fact, in a war-tone scenario, might actually save your life. Mm -hmm. And so what does it mean when we, when we now inherit these tools? They're supposed to be tools, right? Um, but tools that we no longer need and they become hindrances. Um, so I think I wanted to recast that and leave the binary of your parents were ill, so therefore you're ill and look at it in a much more multifaceted way. That's such a beautiful recasting. I love that in terms of any illness, really, or mental illness, particularly. And also, if we took in the realities of our world, shouldn't we all fall apart? Right. It's almost incredible that somewhere along the line, evolution had us be able to switch off. Right. Something that struck me, and I'll read a passage which is about an inheritance. So it's when the protagonist's little dog is about nine and and he's being teased and the other boys say, don't you ever say nothing, don't you speak English, look at me when I'm talking to you. And you write, only nine, but he had already mastered the dialect of damaged American fathers. And that made me think that, yes, we're all accumulating the language, the aggressions, the the love that we inherit along the way. And just as your character, Little Dog, was facing his own, um, you know, struggles with his mom and grandma, these little American boys, these bullies, are so sadly absorbing theirs. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that it's, it's, it's when we talk, when we start to think about whiteness as a construct, masculinity as a construct that oppresses and fails everyone. And I think when we start to think about that, in the same way we, we think about a storm on the horizon, we can collectively start to remedy it and find antidotes. When we say you know, things like the hegemonic masculinity is actually a straitjacket on men as well as everyone else. You know, and, and it's damaging to them and everyone around them. And I think when we start to think that way, we start to find more agency in trying to find a new way of thinking. And that even when the, the, the oppressors oppress, they are not free. Yes, the way you manage to allow me to have compassion for them as well. I was just struck by that in reading it. And I thought, oh, we have to go so young to try and change behaviors. Right. It begins very young. It does begin very young. You know, girls are applauded for being merely pretty. You're so beautiful. You're so pretty. Nice dress. Right. As early, early as possible, we do that. But when it comes to boys, it's about go get them, you know, great job, uh, knock them dead, buddy. You went in there, guns blazing, knock it out the park, you know, uh, you killed it. And we start to celebrate according to gender. It's gendered celebration. And the problem with celebrating boys is that we often celebrate them through the lexicon of death. 
And so it's no wonder that they become toxic men. I don't think I had ever thought about the killing it analogy. Well, it's not even an analogy. I'd never thought about the killing it, you know, the slogans that we say, like, you're killing it. Right, right. I don't think I'll ever say that again if I can help it. Right. And I mean... We, we might slip into it. It's part of our, it's, it's the weather that mm. we've, it, we're mm. born into, you know. Um, I think it, I think it, I say it all the time. I say it as a way to celebrate friends who I think, you know, deserve it. And so it, it's so powerful. And I think, I don't want to say, you know, let's just, it's a sin to say, or it's sinful or it's, or it's evil. But I think I just want to put pressure on it and say, well, why are we doing that? And can we have something else? And I think we're already doing that. You know, right now, a lot of folks in my community, particularly queer communities, are saying, that's giving me life. You know, that's making me live. So we're saying that now. Like, oh, that you're giving me life with that dress. Oh, your, your poem's giving me life, right? And I think we can easily, literally, instantaneously change the lexicon to celebrate ourselves better. And I think that's the beautiful thing about language is because we're... As much as the world, we like to say the world's in our hands, but in fact, the world is just as much in our mouths. And we can change the way we think as soon as we start to speak. You mention in the book Roland Barth a lot, and I wondered how you first came across his work and how it's affected it. Um, I teach. I teach hybridity. And Roland Bach's Morning Diary is one of the best accidental hybrid texts. As a way of mourning his mother, he wrote a few sentences on note cards every day as a way to prepare for his larger, more famous work called Camera Lucida. But what happened in his note card taking is that he created this sort of elliptical, fragmentary project. And he would go on to influence many folks like uh, Claudia Rankin, Maggie Nelson. And so I, I think Roland Bach was always part of my thinking and my mind uh, when thinking about prose. Because one of the hallmarks of his work is that you can't pin him down. It's impossible to call something Barthesian. And there's very few writers you can do that because in every project, he recasts his obsessions. He contradicts himself. He has different modes. He has an ultimately omnivorous mode of curiosity that goes anywhere to fashion, to mythology, to cameras and photography, to morals and ethics um, in the literary gaze. And I really idolize that restlessness in thinking. And it feels very queer to me, too, to write in a way that resists a brand, to resist being pinned down. Have you already started another work? in terms of you've written poetry and a novel and I feel that even it is a novel but it's it feels so much more expansive than that Mm -hmm. and I'm wondering what other forms you'd like to play with or sometimes I think why don't we make up a word for a different type of thing yeah like as I was reading your book and when you you know you talk about language so much we, why don't we make up other things, other forms? It doesn't have to be poetry, exactly. memoir, novel, nonfiction. Exactly. And, and we might not even have to call it anything. We can just go. 
you know, capitalistic organization demands what something lives under, whether it's nonfiction or fiction, what have you. It's an organizing principle. Someone needs a shelf to go to to order to buy something, right? Someone needs a category to sell something. And so those things I don't think we can get away from. But when you're alone at your desk, I think you should be able to do whatever you want. And maybe that's why I write at night. I feel that when, when we arrive at the desk at night, we arrive through undressing. You take off all your identities and your clothes from the day. You don't have to be a teacher. You don't have to even be a son, although you are. But, you, but those, those, those obligations are suddenly gone. Human beings, your fellow humans are asleep. And so you arrive naked. And then you can really ask, well, who am I? And you can follow that. And then and sometimes it takes you into a mul- a, you know, myriad places um, with multiple layers and multiple genres at once. Can you tell us about one of the first poems you wrote? And I heard you talk about because you were struggling with your English, you would go into the library and in Hartford, Connecticut, where you've said that reading was almost like a treasonous act in that people would be like, who are you? Where are you on your way to as a reader? Like it was some rejection. Class class betrayal. Yeah. And there was a moment where you would start listening to tapes. Can you talk about what tapes you were listening to and why they were helping you learn English? I was listening to the famous speeches. Um, Martin Luther King. There was a reproduction of, of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Uh, Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, and John F. Kennedy. And I was enamored of it. I, 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 the language moved. It's, it stirred in me because of the way the syllables were drawn out. And I realized that, wait a minute, the words mean one thing, maybe three things in a dictionary. But the way you say it and actors know this, even singers know this, right? The way you say it gives it a whole nother power. And it seemed limitless to me. And I, I, I had more of a clearer, more dynamic understanding of language than I ever did reading it, which I struggled with. But it was also something that I've always heard uh, from my mother and grandmother when they told stories how they pause the sentences, how they use anaphora and repetition, uh, how they, uh, their voices cracked, you know, the way their voices cracked when they get to difficult parts. All that the page cannot articulate. And, and I knew I just, I wanted to do something like that. And poetry was the next step because although you don't hear a crack on the page, you have the line break, which is a fracture the caesura, which fractures the line in the middle of a line. Those things were all part of, of fragmentation and silences. Uh, and it was poetry to me is the closest thing to hearing uh, an oratorical tradition. And didn't your teacher think you'd plagiarized a poem you'd written? Yeah, yeah. It was, like, it was sort of like an ode to uh, Martin Luther King's speech. And it wasn't any good, really. I mean... It was just um, me finding pleasure in it and trying to find um, my way uh, into it, right? And, but because I was such a poor student, um, 
he 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 never he didn't think I I wrote it. And so I remember him. He dumped out my desk, you know, to make sure I wasn't copying anybody. And he even warned. He said, "If I submit this to a contest and we find out, you're gonna be in big trouble," you know. And I don't know if he ever did. He never. I never heard anything about about it. But it was interesting because I was confronted with this early on with this thing that that a lot of students confront, particularly students with learning disability and mental illness, where just because your brain is atypical in the way your, the neuro, neuro, neurology works doesn't mean you're stupid or you're wrong. And so I had an imagination. I, I had a rich one, but I didn't have a good handling of grammar, standardized English. And so my imagination was deemed uh, baffling, you know, incomprehensible, impossible even. Um, so it was really fascinating. And then you made the decision to master this language. Was there a kind of inciting moment where you thought, I need to do this? You've talked in the book about becoming an interpreter for your mum. Yeah, yeah. It was a uh, being an interpreter for any, you know, um, ESL student, anyone speaking English as a second language uh, is a lifeline to have a child know the other side, to have a child who is a doorway, you know, to the other world. Um, it does wonders for your skill as uh, a writer. And I didn't know it, but I think because of that, I've been practicing my whole life as a writer. But also being smaller than most kids, being queer, um, being on the quiet side, you know, Joan Didion said her smallness and her, the fact of her being a woman was helped her as a journalist because she disappeared. As soon as she walked into an elevator, she's gone. And people say wild things that she's always listening to. And so this sort of idea of being a chameleon and being a vigilant one was a, a powerful moment for me. And I realized I've been practicing my whole life to be a writer, whether I knew it or not. And when you have to translate something to somebody, what are you doing? You're editing, right? So when one knowledge, one sentence enters in English and then another sentence enters, leaves your mouth in Vietnamese, you're editing. Your whole brain in a matter of seconds becomes a draft-making machine. And before you know it, you're cranking out pristine sentences um, that goes from one ear out the mouth to another in order to service, protect, and work and illuminate your family members. Um, so it was the best thing for me. My last question is about other rule breakers in history that you've, you know, we've talked about Roland Barthes and uh, in the acknowledgements you mentioned Ben Lerner. And I quote you here, that he taught you that the rules are merely tendencies, not truths, and you go on. But I'm wondering if there are any, you know, if people are listening and they want to go and have their, like, those borders broken mm -hmm. for their mind, yeah. besides, you know, devouring your work, who else has been that help, that, that beacon for you? I always go back to Teresa Hak Kyung Cha, who wrote this masterpiece called Dictae. She wrote it in the late 80s, 
and it was published in the early 90s, and the day before publication, she was murdered and raped in New York City. And I always go back to that because everything about the publication, her life, and the book itself is, in a way, the high watermark of what it means to be a writer of color in a lineage that is full of holes, full of ghosts, full of erased peoples. And in the meantime, a masterpiece was written, underread, um, quickly forgotten, and now is finding resurgence, you know. And, and I think what she did there in her novel was to look at a state of incomprehensibility as the most honest way to look at the American tradition as a refugee, as a, a bi- multilingual um, Korean-American woman. And, and often the American novel or the tradition of the American novel tells us that how we appraise the novel through cohesion, fluidity, right? We criticize the novel when we use words like disjointed or uneven. And here comes this Korean visual artist who not only um, deranges those qualities and attributions, but insists that disjointedness is actually a praxis towards faithful renditions of mental, psychological, and physical displacement in the American body. And her, she actually disrupts her own book with Korean, French, and then images. And I think she was one of the precursors to the works of Claudia Rankin, Banu Kapil, Maggie Nelson, et al. Um, it was her work, and I think about her often. One of the things I loved about Ocean's book and this conversation was how he's so willing to experiment with form. Even though he's a poet and that's the medium he knows and loves potentially most, he he felt like he had to explore prose in a way to tell this very specific story. Um, He also kind of is drawn to people who do the same thing. And Ben Lerner, as one of his teachers, uh, inspired him to think outside the box and just get it all down without um, judging himself. Let me know what you think of this episode at Lit Up Show on Instagram and Twitter. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.